Hello, and welcome to another episode of Theology-ish. I am one of your hosts, Ryan, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and brother-in-law, William. Say hello, William. Hello. That's that's me. I'm the co-host. Well, yeah. We both are. Yeah, I mean, well, co. Well, one of us has to be the main host. Right? Co-hosts. That's, co-hosts. Yeah, we, I think that's okay. I think that's proper. Well, it's probably show. I well, mean, we, we'll figure it out. We're recording it at your house, so you can be the main host. That's true, but I'll, we'll, I'll be the the co. I'm fine with that. Anyway, we'll, we'll figure this out between recordings. <laughs> yes. How are you doing this fine evening, William? I am doing dandy. How how are you, Ryan? I appreciate your your terminology there. Dandy is a good one. I'm a dandy boy. Mm. Dandy fellow. I'm doing well. I'm I'm glad. As happy as I can be. That is... Hmm. I guess that's pretty happy. Yeah. Saved by the blood of the lamb. Nothing Nothing can make one happier than that, right? Amen. Well... Amen, amen. What are we talking about tonight, William? Excuse me. Um, Tonight, (laughs) we are talking about Clement of Rome's first epistle to the Corinthians. First, so he's got more than one. Well, no. Um, (laughs) There are others that are titled like the second epistle by Clement of Rome, to the church in Corinth, which is not by Clement, probably not from Rome and not to the church in Corinth. Uh, but that does exist. There's also, I think, a third epistle that is also not his. Uh, but that's, you know. That's neither here nor there. It's not important because he, he did write the one, as far as we can tell. He did. He, he wrote the one, um, and that's what we will be talking about tonight. Or today, or this afternoon, whenever you're listening, I suppose it's nighttime here. But yeah. and here and now, that's true. Yeah. Uh, before we get into Clement, I would like to read a brief quote from Eusebius, who uh, mentions Clement in his church history. So this is from section. It's book three of Eusebius of Caesarea's Church Histories. He writes, In the twelfth year of the same reign, Clement succeeded Anacletus after twelve years as bishop of Rome. In Philippians, specifically chapter four, verse three, the apostle describes him as a colleague in the words with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. In the name of the church at Rome, Clement composed one recognized epistle, long and wonderful, and sent it to the church of the Corinthians, where there had been dissension. This letter was read publicly in many churches both in days of old and in our own time. That there was dissension at at Corinth in Clement's day is clear from the testimony of Hegesipsis. Who you really, was really nailed that name? Yeah, how would you pronounce it? It's at the very it's end, very there. end, right there. Let's, let's take a look. Hegesepsis. 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 Whatever. Uh, he he Hegesepis. was. He was yeah. also uh, 
something of a historian in his own right. Um, his writings no longer exist except as quotations within Eusebius. So that's sad. That is um, sad. Anyway, Clement, as Eusebius points out, is likely mentioned by Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, which I will read now out of the ESV right quick. Uh, I'm just going to start from verse 2. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintaichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It's it's going to be a night with those names, oh, I can man. already tell. Well, well, we're done with names now, and now we're just on to Clement. I hope so. so. That's... Uh, there's a good argument to be made that that's probably the same Clement who wrote this uh, this epistle to the church at Corinth. He is probably the third bishop of Rome. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyons, who wrote around 180, says that he is third. Eusebius of Caesarea also says that Clement is third. Tertullian of Carthage. Carthage says that Clement is the second bishop of Rome. Um, but we're going to ignore Tertullian and go with Irenaeus and Eusebius. He's probably third. Um, so it's... Tertullian's not our real dad. We don't, we don't listen yeah, to that. Yeah, we, we don't need to listen to Tertullian. He's not my real dad. Um, he, he technically died as a, as a bit of a heretic. So, oh, that's you know. Not great. No, it's not. He, he wrote some good stuff. But he, he had got... He had some trouble there. We'll, we'll talk about Tertullian we'll some get other day. We'll talk about him some other day. Um, so it's Linus, Anacletus, Clement. That's the succession of bishops of Rome after Peter, basically. Um, he, Clement was a colleague of Paul's and of Peter's by extension. Um, so he's the very first generation of the church after uh, the apostles. So it's that period known as the Apostolic Fathers, which lasts roughly from the end of the first century to about 155, 157-ish, somewhere in there. Um, And his epistles probably from a about the year 98-ish, he references some troubles that his church had been undergoing at the time. We can take that and uh, look at the persecutions that happened under specific emperors, and it lines up to around 90-something. So it's in the late 90s that Clement writes his epistle. It appears to be the case that the church in Corinth had ousted their clergy for some reason. We don't know why. Perhaps Hegesipsis mentioned why in particular, um, but we don't have Hegesipsis' writings anymore. We're going to have to start putting a dollar into a jar every time you say Hegesipsis Hegesipsis by the end of this episode. Well, uh, this should be my last mention of Hegesipsis. I I hope so for your sake. There's, I don't know, probably $10 in that jar by now. But Give it to charity or something. Yeah, sure. Why not? So we don't actually know for sure what the church in Corinth did or why they ousted their clergy, but it appears that they 
didn't have a very good reason for it. Because Clement, all the way over in Rome, he says, What? You guys can't do that. And uh, if... uh it seems Paul had some some things to say about the church in Corinth and their troubles before as well. Yeah, this they, doesn't they, uh, seem to be a new issue with that church. Corinth was just doing what Corinth do, which is to say the wrong thing. Yeah, um, and Clement took it upon himself to write them. Now, people who are Catholic and perhaps less critical of their own beliefs than they ought to be look at this and they say see this is evidence of papal primacy bro because early in the late first century we have a bishop of rome who's telling other churches what to do but if you read the epistle very carefully well not even very carefully if you just read it if you read it if you read it at all Clement at no point appeals to himself as bishop of rome he's never like I'm Bishop of Rome, so you got to li- He never does that. He's never like, I'm the big man, bro. He writes to them um, like a heartbroken friend um, rather than an authority figure who's throwing his weight around. Um, it's a very... It's long for the period that it's from. It's about 30-odd, 38 pages, I believe. It's amongst the longer ones from that period. um, Yeah. Um, This and The Shepherd of Hermas are the two longest. The Shepherd of Hermas, the copy that we have read is like, it's 70-something pages. Between, like, 70 and 80 pages, yeah. yeah. Um, it's longer than this, but not by a whole lot. Yeah, and we are uh, going to be reading excerpts today from a translation by Maxwell Staniforth. It's the Penguin Classics edition of Early Christian Writings. Um, I highly suggest that you get that or perhaps uh, find it on the internet and... It's all in the Give public domain. This uh, well, stuff is like 2,000 years old. This particular translation is not the, the public domain. But you not can't, this translation. You can find translations that are yes. in the public domain that are going to be more like Victorian-style English. Um, but this, you can get a copy of this uh, translation for cheap. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, so. Anyway, a couple things about... The, the epistle overall, uh, there are a couple themes and a couple things to uh, keep your eye out for. The first theme throughout the epistle is humility. Clement is constantly calling the church in Corinth to be humble. Um, and I think that as people who are interested in theology, which I assume you are if you have clicked on this podcast. I would hope so. Yeah, you're probably interested in it. You might not be, and if you're not, maybe you listen to something else. That's some good advice, William. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But if you're interested in theology, uh, this 
should uh, apply to you very much so. You, you got to be humble enough to submit yourself to your elders. You know, you can interpret that comment however you want, but uh, you, you, you got you to gotta know that there are other people who know more things than you do. Um, and Clement presents himself to the church in Corinth as knowing more things than they do. Um, he's going to go on and share some concerns that, uh, that he has with them about their sins. And he's going to draw allegories between the sins of the church of Corinth and examples from the old Testament. So we find him reading the old Testament in a way that's kind of allegorical, um, which, you know, some people take umbrage with, but it can be helpful to approach the Old Testament that way. Now, the New Testament at, at this point was in the process of being compiled, well, was already compiled. Where does that uh, sit? Written, not compiled. Okay. So, it, like, well, depending on who you ask, um, I, I, I would take... A twenty-two caliber bullet for it being done by the year one hundred. Um, I don't think that the arguments about it taking much longer than that to be finished are particularly compelling. So the 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 New Testament is done, but it's not been brought all together yet into one and thing. Not only that, the early compilations of the New Testament looked a little different than they do today as well. They, yeah had some extra stuff in there that we don't consider canon today. Um, the um, Epistle of Barnabas comes to mind. Well, the, it, it depends on what period, because for like the earliest versions of the New Testament, it was actually shorter than what we have now. Um, second and third John were not in it. Um, second Peter was not considered canonical for a little bit there. Hebrews was debated because we don't know who actually wrote it. Uh, Revelation, that, that that almost didn't make it in, believe it or not. I, I can believe that, actually. Yeah, they, they yeah. were like, hmm, I don't know if we want and, that one um, It's a lot. During some of those very early uh, renditions as well, the Shepherd of Hermes was included in some of those yeah. um, for a time, pretty briefly. Um yeah, but the, I, I find that interesting because Hermas actually mentions Clement of Rome in that writing. Yeah, yeah, um, as the bishop of Rome. So, uh, yeah, he's instructed to write down his visions and give them to Clement. So that gives us a pretty good idea of when roughly Hermas was writing his his. Uh, the shepherd. All, all that to say, the New Testament has not been compiled into one place just yet. Yeah. Um, so Clement gives us, as he goes through and he's using the Old Testament to teach and correct the church in Corinth, it gives us some clues of the kinds of things that are being universally read in the church, right? Um, because Clement in Rome knows these things. And he assumes, without any reticency, that the church in Corinth is reading these same things. Um, so he's 
references a bunch of stuff from the Old Testament, like uh, Jonah, um, a bunch of stuff from Genesis. He, he, and for all you Protestants out there, he also references uh, the Apocrypha, parts of that. He references Judith, um, which the Catholics still keep in their Bibles, but as Protestants... You, us, us lowly Protestants. Us lowly Protestants. You, yeah. you might be less familiar with Judith. Um, I've yet to read it myself. I, I I intend to one day. It's a good little read. Yeah. It's, it's fine. Um, I see why it was decided to be taken out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you know yeah, there are so worse things to read. We, we have an idea of what the people in the church we're reading at that time. Yeah, he he references Paul's letters, in particular the letters to Corinth. Which would especially make sense if he knew Paul, if that yeah. is the Clement that is referenced. If he knew Paul and he knew the people in Corinth, but that also tells us that he's familiar with those letters himself because he can't say, look to the letters and see what Paul said to you in them if he hasn't, if he's not familiar with their content, yeah. right? So that tells us that the First and Second Corinthians, maybe Third Corinthians as well, which existed at one point but not anymore. Um, that that was being read on on some level by those in Rome, yeah. um, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. So, so where do we start with Clement? Oh, I mean, it's not a long read. But it's not super long. No, I, I think there are just a few things that. I'm interested in talking about in here that we'll go through and I'll point at and say, hey, isn't that neat? Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Um, hmm. Which part would I like to point at first? How about just, just a, a little quote? A yeah. little sample for us. Yeah. The eye of faith has grown dim, and instead of following the commandments and living as becomes a citizen of Christ— each one walks after the desire of his own wicked heart. All have fat, fallen back into the horrid sin of envy, the sin that brought death into the world. Which yeah. is he? Man, he's, he, that's he, a downer. Yeah, he. That, this this is like really close to the beginning. He he opens by, uh, you know, being like, "Hey guys." Sorry for taking so long to get back to you. We've been really busy with, you know, getting murdered. Um, <laughs> Man, you guys in Corinth, you used to have such a good record, yeah, right? I, I, the whole first section is literally titled The Corinthians' Previous Good Record. Yeah, and then he's like, you guys used to be so humble. You you preferred to offer submission rather than exhort it, than ex extort it, and... Giving was dearer to your hearts than receiving. And then he's like, but now y'all suck being a bunch of buttholes. So he's talks about how uh, their jealousy and their envy has led them to acting bad. That's so, something I think all of us can relate to a little bit. Yeah, um, but I, I really like that because envy, the sin that brought death into the world, that's not – if we were – that's a different way of thinking about that than we usually think about that. Because right. would you say that Adam and Eve's sin was primarily envy? I want to say no, it, given I mean, the way that I've been brought up to understand it. Yeah. 
but when you think about it, that yeah, that, that yeah, yeah, that tracks. Um, and, and I think that's something we're gonna we're gonna be seeing a lot here with these early writings. Is uh, huh? We don't really think about it that way anymore. But now that you mention it, yeah, because they they want to be like God be. Yeah. Um, and it is their envy that compels them to partake of the fruit. Um, and you know, if you were gonna be pedantic and be like, well, Satan sinned first. Well, his sin was also envy, so still tracks. Um, and, you know, in our context, we, if someone was like, yeah, man, I've really been struggling with like envy lately, we would be like, does that even count as like a sin? Like, that's the worst you're doing? You're envious? One of the seven deadly sins. It's true. In fact. Um, but but do we think of envy as being like the worst, like this super bad no, thing? I mean, just to be honest, when you look at like the seven deadly sins, uh, when I kind of look at that, envy for me is kind of pretty low on that totem pole even. Yeah, but here we have Clement saying it's the sin that brought death into the world, which is... Whew, uh, maybe we ought to think more maybe. bad things about envy than we do. Yeah. Okay. So, moving on from from that little bit, um, he goes on and he gives some examples from the Old Testament. He talks about Cain and Abel and the envy there. He talks about Joseph and Pharaoh and uh, all that. Aaron and Marion. Um, Dathan and Abraham and Moses, and then he talks about King David and King Saul and the envy there and how it creates all these problems, right? Yeah. Um, And then he goes on and he says, leave these instances – I'm sorry, speaking is hard. Leave these instances from the past and come to some of the heroes of more recent times. Take the noble figures of our own generation. Even the greatest and most virtuous pillars of our church were assailed by envy and jealousy and had to keep up the struggle till death ended their days. Look at the good apostles. It was by sinful jealousy that Peter was subjected to tribulation, not once or twice, but many times. And it was in that way that he bore his witness ere he left for his well-earned place in glory. And Paul because of jealousy and contention, has become the very type of endurance rewarded. He was in bonds seven times. He was exiled. He was stoned. He preached in the East and in the West, winning a noble reputation for his faith. He taught righteousness to all the world, and after reaching the furthest limits of the West and bearing his testimony before kings and rulers, he passed out of this world and was received into the holy places." In him, we have one of the greatest of all examples of endurance. This is super cool, all right? Follow with me now. Okay. Now, if you read Acts, yes. how does Acts end? It's a good question. It ends with Paul in chains for, I believe it's Felix. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he's in prison, and he's like, he gives his whole speech about Christianity. Uh, the governor replies, 
you want me to be a Christian just like that, just from hearing you speak? And Paul says, I wish that you would be exactly as I am, except, of course, for these for chains, these change, which is so sick. It's so sick. <laughs> so anyway, metal. that's how Acts ends. Paul is alive and in prison, right? And here we have Clement telling us that he went to the furthest limits of the West, which is not Rome— in the Roman Empire, the furthest limits of the West is Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, which Paul mentions planning to go to in his epistle to the to Roman, in his epistle to the Romans. Yeah. He mentions that he wants to go to Spain after going to Rome, right? So the fact that Acts ends with Paul alive and the fact that Clement is telling us that he goes to Spain, that's a pretty good indication that after after Acts, Paul goes and does some more stuff. Which is super interesting because we obviously don't have any accounts of this. It's true. We have no written accounts of this actually happening or or any historical indications outside of this that would right, but say so. Clement is a dude who knows Paul personally, yeah. right? Like, like they knew each other. They were colleagues. Um, so it, it's just very interesting because as, as a Christian, mm-hmm. as, as a modern-day Christian, obviously this epistle is not canon to the Bible or, or Holy Scripture in any way. Um, I wasn't even aware that this existed until, like, last year, right? And I'm sure that there are many, many others out there like myself who also are unaware that this even exists. Mm -hmm. And amongst those that do, how many of them have actually even read it, right? It kind of makes you wonder why the church doesn't talk about stuff like this. Why are we not talking about Clement of Rome and the fact that he mentions that Paul probably finished his journey to the West and, and, you know. I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because Catholics like Clement of Rome's first epistle to the church in Corinth. Mm. So the Protestants are like, no, I'm good. Because sola scriptori, right? And yeah. Yeah, sure. Sola scriptori. It's cool. You want to explain what that is for those who uh, might not only be familiar? Scripture. It's the idea that the only thing you need for teaching within the church is Holy Scripture, the yeah. Bible. That's all you got. Uh, and that's, yeah, sure. And it, sometimes it, it can help to, to look at other stuff like Clement of Rome because, right, Acts ends with Paul alive. If he made it to Spain, what a feather in his cap that would be for Luke to mention when writing Luke Acts, right? So he goes before the the uh, the governor, and then he gets set free, and look at how cool Paul is. Rome doesn't think that he's a threat. And then he makes it all the way to the far reaches of the world. The entire world has now been touched by Christianity. Woohoo! Or if Paul um, is martyred, what a great ending for Luke Acts that would be, right? Because Paul, his ministry in many ways mirrors Jesus's ministry. So what a great ending it would be for the hero of 
axe to have this a similar death to the hero in Luke, right? Because Luke acts were it was written as volume one and volume two by Luke. But that's not what's there. Which in this paper, I will argue, indicates an early date for Luke Acts. Um tradition tells us that Paul would eventually be martyred in Rome around 68-ish, towards the end of Nero's reign. So that means that Luke Acts would have been written around, I don't know, if we take Clement seriously and we just think about how you would want to end your book about Paul. And we should take him seriously. Yeah, if we take these things together, that means it was probably written around mid-60s, which is way earlier than most scholars would say. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that's significant. That's something to be aware of and to think about. And, you know, I, I'm having a, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of conjecture here to be sure, but I think it's fair conjecture and reasonable to wonder about at the very least. Um, so that's something super interesting there in Clement that, uh, in the first few pages that uh, makes it worth reading even for the, the Protestant. So much of this is literally dedicated to just be humble. Yeah. The, that is yeah. present through the entire writing from from the very first page on, on this copy that, that we have. Um, it's two paragraphs in it literally opens on that that third paragraph with humility too and a complete absence of self-assertion were common to all of you Mm -hmm. you preferred to offer submission rather than extort it and giving was dearer to your hearts than receiving and then on the the word humility just it 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 shows up over and over again Mm -hmm. he's so focused on that which is a little bit of a clue about what's going on in Corinth, mm. right? Um, that and his section on envy, it should clue us in the things that are going on in Corinth are things where people are being envious of each other and non-humble. They're not submitting themselves to the... Uh, the elders of the church, which at the time would have been folk who were most likely appointed to their positions by, like, Paul, right? If if someone was, like, 40 around the time of Paul in the late 50s and 90, they would be, well, they, they'd, they'd be really old. They'd be, like, in their late 80s. But if someone was, like, I, I don't know. Let's do some better math. If someone was 35 in 60, in 95, that's 35 years, they'd be 70, right? So it's entirely possible that the elders of this church are folk that Paul himself was like, yep, this guy, he he can be your leader, dude. And the people in this church are like, Screw that. I don't I don't want to listen to him. Have you guys seen old Tom? Look at him. He shuffles. I don't have to listen to him. And I, I think uh, on some level, I, I have struggled with this 
in the past in church as someone who aspires to do ministry that there are like really old dudes on staff at church and it's like, man, if they would just retire and make some room for us young folk, we could make some changes around here. And that's probably not the right way to uh, to think about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, as someone who who volunteers in a church uh, in, in a pretty large capacity, I I volunteer frequently and and often throughout the week. Um, someone who is involved with the church staff and and all that stuff. Um, there are often times where I feel like we are not doing something the way I think would be ideal or right or things aren't getting done the way that I want. And it's it's so easy to just jump to, oh, well, if all of our elders were in a bunch of old people or if all of, you know, if all of the deacons were in a bunch of old dudes, well, maybe things would get done right the way that I think they should be done because obviously I know better than they do. Um, which is not at all the right approach to take. And granted, the uh, elders and deacons of our churches are not people who were personally selected by Paul. If only. Yeah, um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some level of deference to their wisdom and experience, um, provided that they are not uh, guilty of apostasy or unrepentant sin in in those instances, then okay, yeah, but now we need to have a conversation about who we allow to be within church leadership. Um, but if they have been faithful, which it appears to be the case for the leadership of the church in Corinth, they had been faithful, then you can't just out them because they're old or because you don't want to listen to them. That's not the right way to do things. And as we talked about a couple episodes ago when we did an overview of, like, church history, once Luther opens the floodgate for being like, well, I don't really like the way things are being done, so I'm going to go do my own thing, that that ended up causing a lot of splintering really fast. Um, so instead of, you know, having the humility to be to submit yourself to the leadership within your church and listen to their wisdom insofar as they have that to offer. If you can just go off and start your own church, yeah. then you can do that now. And that's not the right no. move. And this can't be stressed enough, but unity is one of the most important things for a, a church body to thrive. And we see this a lot in the early writings, um, in this, you know, the patristic period and stuff. Yeah. Um, I want to say Ignatius talked a lot about it. I might be wrong all, about all that. All of them talk about all it. All of them Unity pretty much. of the church is of paramount importance. Yeah. Um, the church is the bride of Christ, and Christ is no polygamist, right? Uh, so we— I'd hope not. Th- yeah, but it's one. Yeah. There's one bride of Christ, right? Um, so be a part of that one bride— Right. As we've previously established, I've been accused by my wife and others of being a Catholic. I'm not because um, I don't think that the Catholic Church is right about everything. Um, of course, there are plenty of Catholics who don't think that the Catholic Church is right about everything, but I digress. Christians ought to submit themselves 
to the capital C church, you know? Um, you got there in the end. I got there. I had, <laughs> I had to find it. But no, unity. It's yeah, unity, humility, harmony. Huge. It, I, it, paramount to the church body. And can, it, can I just read the, uh, the little section headings yeah. of Clement? Um, so I don't believe that these are there in the original text. They are added, much like your section headings in your Bible are added, but they're still helpful. And I'm just going to read some of them real quick. The sinfulness of jealousy. The exemplary obedience of the saints. An appeal to renounce obstinacy and schism. The humility of Christ and the saints. Harmony and cooperations are lessons which nature itself teach us. There are no... Uh, well, that one's different. Um, but do, do you detect a theme there? Just a little bit of an undergirding. Just a little bit, yeah. 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 There's a section here in Clement that we must talk about. Because if we've done a good job so far, we've hopefully convinced you to go read this. And if you do go read this and we don't mention it, you're going to read it and go, wait, wait, did he just say the things I think he said? And I, I think I know exactly where this is going, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we have to talk about the phoenix. Yes. Uh, yes, as in of course. The critter that's a firebird that that dies and then comes back. Um, as it do. As, as one does. So uh, I'm just going to read Clement's section on the phoenix real quick. So he's... He does his part where he talks about uh, humility and unity and uh, humbleness and not being obstinate and not schismatic and obedience and all that. And then he starts to give summaries of different doctrinal points. So he talks about the resurrection. He talks about um, living a holy life. He talks about um, how faith and works go together, much like James teaches us in, in his epistle. Um, so he, he goes into all of these things, and then he talks about church hierarchy and whatnot. But as he's talking about the resurrection, he gives some examples from nature, how day and night give us an example of resurrection as the night, as day passes into night and then the sun rises the next day. Um, he talks about plants and how the seed dies, but the plant grows. Like he's, he's taking these examples from nature about resurrection. And then you're probably going to be with him for a little while. Oh, I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read the couple. Yeah, I just yeah. read it. Yeah. I'll just think, my dear friends. So he's talking about the resurrection. How the Lord offers us proof after proof that there is going to be a resurrection, of which he has made Jesus Christ the first fruits by raising him from the dead. My friends, look how regularly there are processes of resurrection going on at this very moment. The day and the night show us an example of it. For night sinks to rest and day arises. Day passes away and the night comes again. Or take the fruits of the earth. How and in what way does a crop come into being? 
When the sower goes out and drops each seed into the ground, it falls into the earth shriveled and bare and decays. But presently the power of the Lord's providence raises it from decay, and from the single grain a host of others springs up and yields their fruit. And you're probably with Clement up until this point. You're tracking. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I f- you follow? Yeah, I follow. All right. Okay. Now, look at this strange portent that occurs in the east in the neighborhood of Arabia, to be precise. There is a bird known as a phoenix, which is the only specimen of its kind and has a life of 500 years. When the hour of its dissolution and death approaches, it makes a nest for itself out of frankincense and myrrh and other fragrant spices. And in the fullness of time, it enters into this and expires. Its decaying flesh breeds a small grub, which is nourished by the moisture of the dead bird and presently grows wings. This, on reaching full growth, takes up the nest containing the bones of its predecessor and carries them all the way to the, from the land of Arabia into Egypt and to the city called Heliopolis. There, in the full light of day, and before the eyes of all beholders, it flies to the altar of the sun, deposits them there, and speeds back to its homeland. And when the priests consult their time records, they find that its arrival has marked the completion of the 500th year. Which... At that point, you're probably not with Clement anymore. No, I'm. I'm not. I'm not tracking no, anymore. No. Yeah. Um. But this isn't really Clement's fault because he's a well-read, relatively educated person, as we can tell from his writing style, as we can tell from the things he references. Um, it's not his fault. It's Pliny the Elder's. Um, I have the section in Pliny the Elder. It's his uh, natural history book pulled up here. Um, So I'm just going to read what Pliny says about the phoenix, and it will become clear very quickly that Clement read Pliny. Ethiopia and India especially produce birds of diversified plumage, and such as quite surpass all description. In the front ranks of these is the phoenix, that famous bird of Arabia, Though I am not quite sure that it is that its existence is not all a fable, it is said that there is only one in existence in the whole world, and that that one has not been seen very often. We are told that this bird is of the size of an eagle and has a brilliant golden plumage around the neck, while the rest of its body is of a purple color, except the tail, which is blue, with long feathers intermingled with a rosette hue. The throat is adorned with a crest and the head with a tuft of feathers. The first Roman who described this bird, who has done so with great exactness, was Senator Manlius, so famous for his learning, which he owed to to the instruction of no teacher. He tells us that no person has ever seen this bird eat, that in Arabia it looked upon as sacred it is looked upon as sacred to the sun, and it lives five hundred and forty years. That when it becomes old it builds a nest of uh, sprigs of incense, which it fills with perfumes, and lays its body down upon them to die. That from its bones and marrow there sprouts a sort of small worm, which in time changes into a little bird. That the first thing that it does is to perform the obsequies of its predecessor and carry the nest entire to the city of the sun near Panchea, which is in Egypt, and there deposit it upon the altar of that divinity. The same Manlius states also that the revolution of the great year, it is completed. Uh, well, that, that's enough of that. It's it's Pliny's yeah. fault. Clement read Pliny, and he was like, cool, yeah. bird. And 
I, I just want to quickly draw attention to this. This is interesting mm-hmm. that that description of a phoenix is not even remotely similar to the modern depiction of what a phoenix would be, no, right? There, there's like no fire. Yeah, because when you I think... I mean, it is connected with the Temple of the Sun. Yeah, but when you think phoenix, right, you think of a bright red eagle-esque bird that produces fire and is reborn every so often. It is like it's a purple bird with golden downs on its neck and a blue tail. And it turns into a worm. A, a grub, yes. Yeah, a grub. And is then it flies to Egypt and yeah. then flies back, and it, it only a, does this every 500 years. Well, Pliny says 540, but 500, yeah. yeah. So um, I just find that a little interesting. I'm very curious how we went from that to the bright red firebird. Uh, but my guess that's less important. Is, so because of this inclement, the phoenix becomes a, the Christians end up co-oping it as a Christian symbol, and there are some very ancient churches with pictures of phoenixes in them because it becomes a Christian symbol. So probably through that iconography, because if you painted it purple in the year 100 over time, that would probably fade to a more reddish hue, I imagine. Or if you can't get purple paint, you might just go with red because close enough. Um, Anyway, so... Yeah, phoenixes don't exist, probably. Not as far as we know. I, I mean, to be fair, if it's only every 500-something years... And there's seen, only one of and them. And there's only one. And it, the last time it would have gone there would could have been like 15-something, and we wouldn't know about it. So, so you know... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you here just a little bit, um, actually. Um in talking about some of the more outlandish things that you can read um, pertaining to church history and theology, um, your response has often been, well, when your faith is based on a dude who claims he's the son of God, which, first of all, whoa, Mm -hmm. take a step back. But beyond that, this dude then is dead and then just decides I'm not going to be dead anymore. How weird is this by comparison? How yeah. outlandish is it realistically? In fact, it kind of makes sense because, you know, if God made the world, then perhaps he would make a uh, a symbol of how he be, and then he reveals himself in his his son who dies and then resurrects it. Yeah, then the, the phoenix would be a good thing for for God to uh demonstrate that would be a or, lesser revelation by comparison yeah um but so not to say I believe in the Phoenix but yeah, no if we were to suddenly find out oh wow that's a Phoenix I can't say I'd be too surprised I, I mean I'd be surprised personally I'd be like well that's I'd be weird. a little shocked but, but but yeah like cool I can um, move past that right but let, let's just take a moment to appreciate the phoenix is um it goes to the temple of the sun god in egypt right so it is this pagan symbol that is part of the pagan calendar doing pagan stuff and the egyptians would be like 
check it out. The phoenix shows up every 500 years, brah. This is, like, totally proof that the sun god is, like, super dope. And that's how the Egyptian pagans would probably talk about it, right? And Clement takes that, and he goes, that's a nice uh, religious symbol you have there. Would be a shame if this was, you know, evidence for my religious thing instead of your Which religious is thing. hilarious, because you so often get so fired up and upset when uh, other religious groups take take things of the church body and make it theirs, you will so often go, no, get your own stuff. That's ours. Yeah, get, get your own Get things. your own crap. But that's exactly what Clement is doing here, which is so funny. But if the phoenix was made by God, then it belongs to those who are our gods. So the phoenix really belonged to Christianity the entire time. So it's true. Take that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he he's taking this pagan thing and he's kind of uh, baptizing it in a way and being like, no, no, phoenixes are are an example of resurrection, not an example of the sun god's presence on earth, um, which is. Nifty from an apologetic standpoint, how he does that. Um, but yeah, phoenixes yeah. are almost certainly not real, but it's not Clement's fault. Yeah. It's Pliny's. But perhaps moving away from the phoenix. Yeah, moving on more, from, the, from the phoenix. Yeah. Into something more substantial, perhaps, um, for our sake. Yeah. I'm just going to read this uh, section, and we'll uh, talk about it as we go. There must be no time lost in putting an end to this state of affairs, that is, the schism within Corinth. We must fall on our knees before the master and implore him with tears graciously to pardon us and bring us back again into the honorable and virtuous way of brothers who love one another, which is post-baptismal repentance, right, which becomes a a problem in in later writings from this yes. period. But here we have Clement who has no problem with people repenting of sin post-baptismally. Mm. So just throwing that out there. We'll talk about that some other time. Baptism part two. Yeah. For that is the great for that is the gateway of righteousness, the open gate to life. As it is written, open me the gates of righteousness that I may go in and praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall come in by it. There are many gates standing open, but the gate of righteousness is the gate of Christ, where blessings are in store for every incomer who pursues the path of godliness and uprightness and goes about his duties without seeking to create trouble. By all means, let a man be a true believer. Let him be capable of expounding the secrets of revelation and a judicious assessor of what he hears and a pattern of virtue in all his doings. But the higher his reputation stands, so much the more humble-minded he ought to be. And furthermore, his eyes should be fixed on the good of the whole community rather than on his own personal advantage. Anything to say about those things, Ryan? There's a lot you could you could say about that. Shall we not say anything then? Just keep on keep <laughs> on going. I like it. All right. I agree. I I think Clement is is right in his his assessment of things. I'm glad that a man who was discipled by Peter and Paul has your seal of approval, Ryan. 
Well, I'm glad you find him. He certainly needs it. I mean, <laughs> if I haven't approved your work, how? Yeah, how? How, how, we, how will any of our listeners know that it's worth reading? That's actually how the canon was established. Is that Ryan was like, yeah, this is cool. Not that that one's just a heresy, actually. Oh, is it okay? <laughs> All right. If there is true Christian love in a man, let him carry out the precepts of Christ. Who can describe the constraining powers of a love for God? Its majesty and its beauty who can adequately express. No tongue can tell the heights to which love can uplift us. Love binds us fast to God. Love casts a veil over sins innumerable. There are no limits to love's endurance, no ends to its patience. Love is without servility as it is without arrogance. Love knows of no divisions promotes no discord. All the works of love are done in perfect fellowship. It was in love that all God's chosen saints were made perfect, for without love nothing is pleasing to him. It was in love that the Lord drew us to himself. Because of the love he bore us, our Lord Jesus Christ at the will of God gave his blood for us, his flesh for our flesh, his life for our lives. It's so good. And, you know, it it becomes clear reading that as well, that he is obviously reading scripture. Um, notably, that that brings to mind the Ten Commandments, um, the greatest of which being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Um, yeah, and it, the second most important of all being love thy neighbor as you love thyself. Um, love is incredibly central to the idea of the faith. And um, it that one paragraph is so Pauline in flavor. It, it's he's not quoting First Corinthians, but 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 he he's definitely echoing it. Yeah, right. You I mean, you can tell that this guy thinks similarly to Paul. And, right. You know something that I've mentioned to you previously is that a lot of these writings from this period often sound very Pauline in nature and in in writing. Mm-hmm. It A lot of this stuff you could probably, to the untrained eye, pass as being written by Paul, perhaps, because it's also Pauline in its theology and its Christo- Christology and, and its orthodoxy. Um, you could say that about this whole writing, but... I think you're right that that section does very well mirror Paul and and what he has to say. Yeah, and it's not that Paul was necessarily a unique thinker within the early church. It's that the early church thought that way, right? Yeah. Um, So the fact that we find these other authors saying things that are very, very similar to Paul— it's an evidence of the unity of thought that was present in the church in its uh, its infancy. Picking up again in the next section. See then, dear friends, what a great and wonderful thing love is. Its perfection is beyond all words. Who is fit to be called its possessor but those whom God deems worthy? Let us beg and implore of his mercy that we may be purged of all earthly preferences for this man or that and be found faultless in love. 
Though every generation from Adam to the present day has passed from the earth, yet such of them as by God's grace were perfected in love have their place now in the courts of the godly, and as the visitation of Christ's kingdom, they will be openly revealed. For it is written, Go into your secret chambers for a very little while, till my rage and my fury pass away, and then I will remember a day of gladness and raise you out of your graves. My friends, if we keep God's commandments in a true loving comradeship together so that our sins may be forgiven for that love's sake, we are blessed indeed. It is written, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and over whose sins a veil is drawn. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord takes no account and on whose lips there is no deceit. And this blessing was theirs, who were chosen by God through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Mm. I think Clement speaks for himself there. Um, So I'll let him speak for himself. Um, You should read it. Read Clement's first epistle. Definitely. We'll we'll bring this plane in for a landing. Yeah. Um, Um, Go read it. You can find translations of this in the public domain online. Um, This particular translation is not free, but... You can pick it up for I mean, pretty cheap anyway. You could probably find it for free. It's the Maxwell Staniforth Penguin Classics Early Christian Writings, which has a collection of several things, including the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. Um, it's a pretty good translation overall. There's some things that I nitpick about, but I'm just a nitpicker. So Yeah, and... Well, thank you for taking us through this brief overview of what Clement had to say. Yeah. And uh, interesting facts about the Phoenix that may or may not exist. Probably not. Probably um, not. Thanks for uh, tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or like a thing that you would like us to do an episode on, you can email us uh, at theologyish at gmail.com if you liked this little episode please give us a, a rate and a review maybe a, a comp leave a comment drop a like drop a like subscribe follow push us up in the algorithms help other people to f- find us if you don't want to do that that's all well and good uh maybe share us with a friend maybe who might like it tell you what tell you what here's what you should do okay send a link of this to your pastor and tell him that he needs to listen to it and do that with every episode that we drop. Send a link to your pastor. Pastors love getting links to things to listen to and to watch and to read. They Especially love it. Especially the ones that are like old and don't know how computers or, work. They love better it. better yet, a pastor, if your pastor has like a degree in something and actually knows stuff, he would love listening to us uh, plebeians drone on for an Ramble. hour about things that he could school us in. Uh, But, yeah, uh, that's that. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Have a good night.